there is a national coins shortage in this country. Right. So uh, for those who don't know, I just got back from a pretty long road trip. Um, places that still have exact change tolls are infuriating. I didn't even know this was a thing still. I'm pretty sure it's like I-40 in Ohio. Pretty sure I was in Ohio, put it that way. Um, you roll up the thing and there's a speed pass, but obviously I don't have a speed pass for that state. Um, I only have one obviously for, you know, my local area, which means I don't have one because Arizona doesn't have any tolls. So I no longer have any kind of a speed pass. Um, the exact change, dollar twenty. Which, uh, is, dumb, which is super super dumb. I I don't understand why you would make it dollar twenty. And towing the trailer, it actually was I think, I don't remember the number like three sixty or something coming back with the trailer or two sixty. I don't know. It was absolute stupidity. But you so you roll up to this thing and it says all tolls strictly enforced. It's unmanned. It has the old school like the big basket you throw your change in. Yeah. Before you roll up to it, though, there's a change machine. So you put your dollar bills in the change machine. Oh, my God. And theoretically, it gives you change to put in the thing. I'm not sure how it breaks it down. Does it give you all dimes? I mean, like, how else do you make what, 260 and uh, 120? So the I reason mean, the reason I don't know that it takes um, the, what kind of change is doled up by the dollar change machine is because, of course, it's out of change. Yeah. So I'm in there and I'm like, well, we have dollar bills, but thankfully we had um, a bag in the back of the car because we had packed a bunch of stuff and there happened to be a big basket of change that we had dumped into this bag. So we had to like dig out this basket of change in the back of the car and manage to make a dollar twenty, and, you know, in change on the machine on the way oh, through. That's so annoying. And it, it, it comes up like three times along the route. And then like... I mean, I remember back in the day, so the Mass Pike used to have different, like, wasn't even integers, I guess, of change for, like, the different tolls. You know, you could get off in, like, Springfield or something, you'd be like, $1.60. Yeah, exactly. Like, what? <laughs> and then, like, it would, like, you'd go visit friends that were at, like, UMass Amherst or something, and you, like, throw the lady, like, a $20 bill because you're like, hmm? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And they look at you all annoyed, like, well, how dare you give me all this money? I need to count things now. So anyway, so apparently it's the Ohio Turnpike because we had gotten off of the main road because we went um, into Ohio a little bit because we camped one night. Yeah. So to get to the campsite it required going the Ohio Turnpike, which is... Oh, well, that makes sense. Section Turnpike. <laughs> but still, it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be... It should be a better way to do it. Or, or or do a pay-by-plate like every other state does. Yeah, they, they didn't have a pay-by-plate option. The only options were have an easy pass or pay exact change. And all the signs were like strictly enforced, strictly enforced. So I don't know. I haven't had good luck on road trips with not being pulled over for ridiculous things. So I didn't want to get pulled over for something ridiculous. So And we're, of course, we're running across country with a trailer full of stuff with mass plates on a trailer and... Arizona plates in a car, so we're already looking sketchy driving across the country. That's like um, when I was on 95 in Florida going from Orlando to Daytona. There's like a 
there's so many tolls between Orlando and Daytona. It's so annoying. Yeah. Like I, I was going through like a bunch of them. And at one point, I just didn't have coins anymore. I just, I was like, well, there's a basket here. I have dollars. I'm just gonna throw them in here. I, like, <laughs> here you go. Like I don't know what to tell you. I tried. Just making it rain in the highway system, Andrew. Yeah. I mean, it's Florida, right? There's all these strippers throwing dollar bills in there anyways, right? I, feel like I don't know. Work. I was just super annoyed because I was not expecting these kind of tolls. Every other state we drove through, regardless of if it was an interstate or a turnpike or a local road, they have a pay-by-plate option. You just drive through, it scans your plate, sends you a bill. So that's what I expected because, again, yeah. I, f- I forget tolls are a thing because I live in Arizona now, and there really aren't many tolls in the West Coast. It's yeah, just, they might as well, like, have a troll under a bridge. and you that's, pay them. Well, it's Ohio, so. <laughs> we had a couple of toll points where we actually, like, talked to somebody and handed them money, which also seems wild in this world of 2020 that we're living in. That you just stand there and just take things out of people's strangers' cars in the highway. But whatever. It is what it is. I'm home. I'm here in Arizona, and I'm safe, and the car made it, and life is good, right? So... Yeah, if that, if that was the biggest problem, I guess I'll let it slide. I mean, there's still places around here that have toll booths. They haven't. Mass went completely no toll booths, which makes perfect sense. But even the places around there that have no toll booths, oh, sorry, that have toll booths, like um, at New Hampshire and Maine, yeah, they have a pay by plate option. You can drive through the Easy Pass, and they'll just send you a bill. Yeah, it's still a point where it causes traffic, though. That was kind of the point in Massachusetts was they if they get rid of the toll booths, it's not a choke, a choke point for traffic. So No, absolutely. And actually, I already got one of the Massachusetts toll bills, toll bills, toll bills in the mail. I came back to the house, and there was a bill waiting for me. So huh. I paid it today. Might as well get it paid. So next time I go to Mass, I don't get arrested for having outstanding toll bills, right? Yeah. I'm assuming it was actually for the um, weekend that we all went up to New Hampshire. So. Um, no, there's no tolls in mass there. Oh, that's right too. We'd the only toll on the North shore would be route one. 95. No, there's a toll coming back to 95. Not in mass. That is New Hampshire. Hmm. Then why did I just pay a toll? You come across the Mass Pike when you came in here? Oh, yeah, there you go. That's what it was. It was the Mass Pike on the way in. Yeah. Um, I knew I checked it. There was a reason for it. Yeah. I just pay it all willy-nilly. But it's, it's well, neat because it's attached to my Arizona tag. So it mailed it to my house in Arizona. There was no issue with them trying to find out where the plate came from. So I'm pretty sure you can just get a fast pass through Mass and just put your Arizona plate on it. Possibly. I don't think they really, I don't think they really care. Oh, so as long as you have a credit card on file, <laughs> they have some place to bill it. As long as they get their money. Yeah. But I'm not I'm not sure if that works, but I haven't even tried because again, I don't drive in mass that much. And generally now when I drive in mass, I'm driving in somebody else's vehicle because I flew there that uh, has mass plates and an easy pass. So it's not not normally an issue. I don't, I'm not normally gonna have my car with Arizona plates back in Massachusetts. So, unless I have lots of time to just drive around the country some more, which would be wonderful. I'd love to do that some more. But, anyway. 
Yeah, welcome to the Auto Off Topic Podcast. Hi, where, we discuss, where we discuss antiquated highway systems and toll points. That's right. Um, so, Brad, other than that, how are you? I'm wonderful. Cool. I have no complaints. Some cool stuff to talk about. We do. You want to on... go in, just go into the road trip to start? Might as well. What I did, where uh, I went. Yeah, we can. So yeah, Go for it. Uh, as the world is in a strange place in 2020, everybody's working from home. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, you know, immune to that. I am working from home. I have a, a laptop and a screen and I do my job from sitting at the kitchen table. So I, uh, proposed a plan to my boss where I was like, Hey, if I'm working from home, does it matter where home is? Uh, and he said, go on. And I was like, well, if I wanted to drive to Massachusetts, and work while I'm in Massachusetts, obviously Phoenix, Arizona business hours, um, would that be a big deal? Uh, And his response was essentially, I mean, I don't see why it would be a big deal as long as you have good internet and we don't really make it a big announcement that you're doing it. (laughs) So that's what I did. Um, Got in the car, took a couple days off, you know, but I think I blew through three vacation days for this entire month trip. We uh, got in the car, took off. We stopped in Oklahoma our first night because uh, Naomi's family uh, lives there. Spent the first week at her sister's house. I worked from home at the kitchen table at her sister's house in Eric, Oklahoma, which was probably the most nerve-wracking point of the whole thing because I was afraid that the internet in Eric, Oklahoma would not be good enough to... Uh, run everything I need to run for work, but my fears were unfounded and it worked just fine. The only time we had an issue was the day that the tornado alarms went off because the storm was really bad and the internet went down. So my first time experiencing tornado alarms also um, in a place with no basement. So that was, that was fun. There was no tornado, and I survived, so we're good. Um, then moved on to Massachusetts, driving the Jetta Sport Wagon across the country. Actually, I had some cargo in the back as well, Andrew. I brought along your 3.5 or 3.8? It's a 3.5. The 3.5 Montero short block for you to get rid of your one that makes some noises. It came out of a... Actually, it came out of Brian Driggs' truck, the... Uh, um, Gearhead Project podcast hosts truck, so you'll have uh, you have that project now to complete, clean up, put together, and get in your truck and make your truck not make noise. So we came across the country. We decided to do things a little bit different than we normally do on our long road trips because we had a bunch of cargo in the car and we had the two dogs. Um, we decided that we'd try camping across the country and uh, not do any hotels, a to avoid you know Corona times, and b because we enjoy camping and thought it might be fun. So I will say it's a great success driving across country and only stopping at campgrounds. So I would, uh, I'd highly recommend it. It's stress-free. Um, you don't have to stress about leaving a car in a parking lot of a hotel in a, some seedy neighborhood somewhere because you just set up your tent right next to your car and sleep in a campground. And generally they're not in seedy neighborhoods. So it was a, uh, it was actually a pretty relaxing way to travel across the country. So I'd, I'd highly recommend it. Um, the only thing is just to 
obviously be aware of the rules in each state as far as campfires and firewood go. So, but other than that, it was, it was, it was easy. There was no, no challenge to it. It was a nice, nice, convenient trip across the country. So good. Yeah. Um, got to Massachusetts, worked from home there for like three weeks. That's what we've been talking about in the podcast, working on some of the cars that were there. Uh, the starter in the Colt, a bunch of stuff on the white Starion. I don't think we covered the starter in the Colt because that was the last uh, podcast we did. Oh, here right. I was thinking about the, the picture that was posted. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so we finished the podcast. It was late too. Yeah, it was probably like 1230 at night. Yeah, he went outside and click, <laughs> click. Yeah. And then more like, <laughs> it wasn't really a click. It made some scary noises. So thankfully you heard it and didn't like immediately go to bed and fall asleep uh, and came outside kind of laughing at me as I guess I do deserve um, as I was sitting in your driveway at 1230 at night in the blue Colt with no starter. So thankfully you were able to give me a ride home because I wasn't blocking your driveway. Actually, I was blocking your driveway, but your yeah, driveway's a hill. So I was able just to coast down the bottom of the hill at least. Yeah. But if you had not backed in, you could pop start the car. I could have, but I was trying to be efficient and back in. Mainly because the road you live on is fairly busy, and I always prefer to pull out of your driveway versus back out of your driveway, especially at a 78 Colt with absolutely zero crash protection. So anyway, um, I had a spare starter. Uh, you can rewind the tapes back to like 2006, actually probably before 2016. It probably predates the podcast that you and I went. To. I, yeah, I think it does. We went to New Jersey to pick up a bunch of Colt parts for for gratis. Um, and they've come in handy a few times. I've used a few of those parts, the radiator, the starter, some various other engine components. Uh, so I had a starter um, of unknown, unknown quality, but I knew it came out of a running car. So I assumed it worked. But it's also been sitting in a fairly damp garage for the past, I don't know, eight years. So we... Uh, it works. It works. It works. It starts the car. Um, I got to give huge props to you because I had to work the next day. Again, doing my work schedule, working the eight to five Arizona time is actually 11 to eight Massachusetts time, which puts a huge damper on getting things done because you don't have a ton of time to like get into stuff in the morning and then you got to be at work, you know, before 11. And then by the time eight o'clock rolls around and you've eaten dinner, you know, it's pretty much time to go to bed and start the next day. So it's not exactly um, conducive to getting a ton of stuff done. So I got to give major props to you on the second to last day I was there, slapping the starter in, in your driveway. So I certainly appreciate that. It seems like it was a fairly uneventful process. Um, it was a little tricky because of the car being so low to the ground and not being able to put it in the air. And it's like located right under the intake manifold. Yeah. So I was able to get the bolts. I think, yeah, I ended up, luckily I've got one of those Milwaukee three H drive electric ratchets, which are like so sweet. I mean, I was never big on power stuff and even using like air tools. It was kind of annoying because the lines and just like you could over tighten stuff or break things. And for a long time, electric wasn't very good. And now it's gotten so good that like, even just like 
it's annoying that they all have their, their own battery systems, but I've kind of limited it to just Ryobi and then having some Milwaukee stuff. I think they're only like a hundred bucks. Like they're 129 without a battery. Yeah. Everyone should just get one every just cause it works like a ratchet too. And, but then it has electric power and it's not like a impact driver. So you can't really, it'll get stuff tight, but you can modulate it to not get stuff super tight. Yeah. Especially if you're doing a bunch of bolts, like an intake manifold or something just makes it so much faster. It cuts down the tight. And so my point being reaching up under the car, I didn't have enough room to really swing the wrench because either you're using a wrench that's too short. It doesn't have enough torque or the thing is too long. It's going to hit the ground. So this gave me just enough to kind of crack them free and then spin them out. Excellent. And then I had to kind of maneuver a piece of a block of wood in there to push the starter up to the bell housing because it wanted to fall away from it. So I get the bolts caught. And then once I got the bolts caught, I just zipped it down with the the gun and it was perfect. So, yeah. And it mostly works. I mean, it it sticks every now and again, like it's stuck. I'll tell you, it's, it stuck the very first time right after I finished the job. And I was like, (laughs) Oh, you mother. Cause I, I tried it with a jump pack first to make sure the thing actually spun before I even put it in the car. Right. And then it was like, uh, and I was like, I hope it's not something else because your battery terminals were a little dirty looking. I tried to clean them a bit. Yeah. Probably from setting because those are brand new battery terminals. Yeah. Um, and then it worked and it worked again and it worked a third time. So I was like, all right, well, it is what it is. It'll get them around for now. You can get a rebuilt starter later Yep. That's or the happens. engine's going to come out of the car. So it doesn't matter. Yeah, if the starter doesn't last very long, we still have the original starter, which I'll just send out to get rebuilt. Yes, yeah. literally sitting Step on the board. So engine, because you do. That's the other thing. You have a uh, you have an engine for it. Yeah, mm-hmm. thanks to the saga of the Barney Starion, I uh, I do have an engine for the car. So did you bring that back with you on the trailer? It is not. No, unfortunately, it's still a master. Oh, I thought, I thought you had that there. The plan was to bring it with the trailer, which we'll get to eventually, but. Uh, it is not. It is on a on a, a dolly underneath the porch of my parents' house. Um, it's probably going to get crated up and shipped. So the, the irony here is I drove across country um, overloaded and uncomfortably packed because I brought your engine from Arizona to Massachusetts, and then I couldn't fit my engine to bring back to Arizona on the way back. <laughs> well, it's a long block. Yeah, it's true. It is a 2.6 long block. 70,000 original miles, everything from valve cover to oil pan, including both intake and exhaust manifold and turbo. So it's it's a direct, literally a direct bolt-in swap for something. Um, which will so be- did you get that for basically trading Andy the purple car? So I gave Andy the purple Conquest, which we've come around here to know as Barney. Yep. Um, and his plan is to rebuild the engine in Barney. Yep. But he wanted a bunch of other parts, and this um, red 87 Starion with no title came up for, for grabs. No title, no keys. Yeah, no title, no keys. The guy it, didn't really know what to do with it because he wasn't a Starion guy. Right. It looks like he owned the tow company that towed it from where it had been sitting since the yep. last inspection sticker was in 1996. Mm-hmm. So the bottom of the car was a disaster. The frame rails are rotted. The rockers are rotted. The bottoms of the fenders are gone. Um, but everything else, car. 
yeah, it's, it's definitely it's definitely a, a, a it definitely deserves to be a parts car. It's got great parts, but the car itself isn't great. Yeah. Um, and again, it only has seventy thousand miles on it, so the mechanical components are, in theory, perfect, because that's not you know that's that's nothing. That's barely broken in. Um, so I wouldn't say it was a trade. There was no uh, official trade, but. I think it was more of a, I gave him a whole car. And when I was looking for that engine, he's like, you can have the engine kind of deal. <laughs> like that's a trade. Yeah. I, yeah. But it, it wasn't, it, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a planned trade, but it wound up being a trade. Well, yeah. One good deed paid back another. So exactly. Exactly. And that's why we do what we do with cars. Like we're not generally, I mean, yes, with the whole vine thing that's in the past and the future, there's definitely a bit of trying to make money with cars, but the cars that we're really into, we never really tried to make money with. We just try to make more cars run and more cars exist. So I got that engine from him. Um, there were two plans. One plan was to slap it into a Raider and make a Turbo Raider. The other plan, which might wind up being the actual plan, is to slap it in the Blue 78 Colt. So I think that's a better idea. I think 180 horsepower, 78 Colt would be a very fun car. You could even run it with the early cars intake that doesn't have an intercooler for simplicity. I could. I could. And then I could put all the intercooler parts in the Starion. It's not a, yeah. bad, it's not a bad idea. So that's like 160 horsepower, 78 Colt versus a 60 horsepower, 78 Colt. So I'll take it. But anyway, so yeah, the motor's still in, in, in Massachusetts. So anyway, worked from home, got all that stuff done. Um, the plan was when I first moved out here to Arizona, I didn't bring a lot of my stuff because I didn't have a place to put a lot of my stuff. Um, I moved into an apartment. I had a whole house worth of stuff. And it was all sitting at my parents' house where it wasn't you know, costing me a monthly storage bill like a storage container would somewhere. And if I brought it here when I first moved here, I would have had a monthly storage bill somewhere for the first year or so that I lived here. So it just didn't make any sense. It was going to cost me the same to bring it here, whether I brought it in the first time or brought it later on. So um, we packed up everything that was in my parents' basement. Actually, a bunch of those 27-gallon black and yellow Home Depot totes. Um, and we were trying to find the best possible way to ship everything out here. And the options are obviously pay somebody to which costs a lot of money. Those pod um, things you see, like you put your stuff in a pod, the truck comes, picks it up, and delivers it across the country for you. was one of the options. Uh, a U-Haul trailer, or buy a trailer and try towing with the Volkswagen. Yep. If you've been following me on Instagram or Facebook, you'll know that we went with option C, which was buy a trailer and tow it with the Volkswagen. Uh, do you know, Andrew, what the cost would be for the pods company to deliver a pod from Massachusetts to Phoenix, Arizona? Mm, I would say... You can hear that motorcycle go by. Yeah, bearing in mind uh, that they ship three to five per truck. I'm going to say 1500 to two grand. Well, you would be off by half because it was $4,300. So, what? Yeah, that was significantly out of my budget. I did not want to do that. Um, the stuff I'm shipping, I guess, I probably could have replaced for $4,300. So that didn't happen. Um, that's, a, that's very expensive. Very expensive. Uh, a U-Haul rental trailer one way from Boston to Phoenix was about 
I think 625 or so with everything included. Mm-hmm. So that's slightly more reasonable. Um, freight shipping was 900 to 1400, depending on the size of the crate that you packed. That would be a, I pack the crate, get it to them. They ship it out here. Um, that's you know, crate shipping by whoever. It probably is the cheapest you know, rate they can find. It's like a broker kind of deal. Um, or the alternative was we went shopping online for utility trailers and bought a five by eight open utility trailer with a ramp gate for $750. Yeah. So I'm like, That's well, pretty good. that costs slightly more than a U-Haul. But at the end of the day, I either have my own utility trailer to own and keep forever or I could probably sell it for $600 pretty easily. And then it only cost me 150 bucks to bring everything out here. So it became a no brainer pretty quickly that we were gonna do the utility trailer method. So bought the Harbor Freight, not Harbor Freight, excuse me. What's the other cheap tool place? Tractor Supply. Bought the yeah. Tractor Supply trailer. Um, tractor Supply seems a little more upmarket, I'd say, than Harbor Freight. Well, I have stories about the every employee I encountered at the store, which we can talk about at a later date. It was not easy to buy this trailer. Uh, Also not easy to buy the spare tire for the trailer. Both things are very difficult. But regardless, I have them. So Um, the only problem is Tractor Supply will sell you a trailer. Tractor Supply doesn't know how to register trailers or do anything with trailers. They simply give you like the paperwork. They give you a bill of sale and that's it. I, yeah, that's how trailers are sold, I think. So. Except most trailer places know how to help you along with the process. So, I, but being as they're not a trailer dealer, they're just a store that happens to sell trailers. They don't know what they're doing. So, thankfully, I had a friend of ours that had a trailer that was registered. And don't tell the police. We just slapped his plate on it and dragged the trailer home. It doesn't really matter. It's a trailer. They're not insured anyway, so it doesn't it doesn't matter at all. Trailer registration is trailer registration. So that's kind of. I mean, they are they are vinned to the registration, but yeah. the way I look at it, if you're using the plate for one trailer, you're not using the other trailer at that time, and the reason you pay registration is for road tax. So, yeah. I mean, it's kind of the same thing. You get no arguments for me. I, yeah, I think it's fine. It's fine. In, in the eyes of the law, if something had happened, maybe it wouldn't be fine, but overall, it's fine. So, uh, then I'm trying in the to grand scheme of criminal activity. Yes. You're fine. Yes, getting pulled over in Tennessee on suspicion of running drugs across country was a much more serious offense last time I drove across country than running a different plate from different trailer is, I think. So um, anyway, now I'm trying to think how I'm going to drive across country, however, with this unregistered trailer because I don't want to drive across country that way because the chances of being asked questions at least are higher, correct? Yeah. So I went to register it in Mass., you cannot register anything in mass right now. There's a two-week waiting period because of COVID. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't going to work because we didn't have two weeks before we were leaving. So I said, okay, well, in Arizona, we do temp tags. They do a 30-day temp tag when you buy a vehicle that you can eventually you can use to get your emissions and stuff done so you can get plates, or you can do a three-day transfer tag. So I was like, well, I wonder if the three-day transfer tag will work on a trailer. This is before before buying the trailer. So I ran my father's trailer VIN 
which is not registered, on the Arizona DMV website. And everything went through and it said, you know, $1, you can print your three-day temp, temp tag, which is three business days. So I printed on a Friday. It's good till Tuesday. So I was like, great. That's all I need, Friday to Tuesday. So let's go buy the trailer. We'll register it on Friday when we leave with Arizona temp tags. Friday morning comes around. I go to register the trailer. Unknown VIN cannot print a plate. Like as we're literally all packed up, ready to leave. So I drove cross country on our friend's Massachusetts trailer plate. So I'm here, right? I guess no harm, no foul, right? Yeah, you're fine. Yeah. So I'm here and everything worked out and I just owe him for some tolls that probably were incurred along the way through the easy pass lanes. But other than that, life is good and I'm here. So trailer's here. The Jetta towed, no problem at all. I was a little nervous. Um, it's sagging a little in the back, which I assumed was from the stuff in the car because it wasn't sagging when I just put the trailer on it. It sagged a lot more once we loaded the car up. Uh, towing capacity on the Jetta is like 22 or 2,300 pounds. That tra- uh, tractor supply trailer is 500 pounds. And my cargo was about 750, give or take, pounds. We, we uh, weighed each individual tote before we put it on and then put them on the trailer in a very um, load-leveled way. So the heavier weight was against the middle of the trailer and then the next heaviest towards the front and the lightest ones in the back so we wouldn't have any kind of swaying issues. So it, uh, it towed really well. You know, we're talking, we probably had a total of... 12 or 1300 pounds being towed with like 150 pound tongue weight. So the Jetta handled that without issue. Uh, I did learn just today after getting back here that the European Jetta has a higher tow rating because they have different rear springs. They have specific springs for towing. So yeah, that's become pretty obvious now. Yes, but whatever. Too little information, too late. The car's here. I don't know that I'll ever be driving across country with a trailer with that car again. So mm. the good news is it made it no problem at all. I was super nervous to the point where we literally spent Friday driving around trying to buy a pickup truck. Mm-hmm. I was literally going to trade my car in on a pickup truck because I was not sure we were going to make it back with that trailer load. So we did, and life is good. But um, apparently the pickup truck market in Massachusetts is much more... Um, much more open than the one here in Arizona. The trucks are much more affordable. So mm-hmm. because some of them are rusty, obviously, but even the, the Japanese trucks like the um, the Frontiers and the Tacomas are significantly less money in Massachusetts than they are here. So I almost should have bought the one of the trucks and brought it back here and sold it here. Yeah. But whatever, we're here. Car did good. I've never owned a more versatile car. You know, it's a station wagon. It's got plenty of room. Without being all loaded down like that, it gets 40 miles a gallon. It's been across the country now three times. Um, I've done, I've put 35,000 miles in that car in a year and a half. Wow. Um, yeah, it's it's been with absolutely no problems. Like, I had to put tires on it. That's it. So, like, I, I have no, no qualms about buying that car, and I can't encourage someone else to buy one enough. It's... Yeah. It's been it's been a great purchase, so no no issues. The opposite of your car, which is five thousand miles on it in a year and a half. 
<laughs> yeah. Not even. If that, yeah. Um, so speaking of Massachusetts, there's a big thing coming up for the on the November ballot. We've got what they call question one. Okay. Which is right to repair. Uh, so back in 13, uh, that election year. Yes, 2013 was, was the last time they did a right to repair act. Because 2014 is that, when it hit the books like nationwide somehow. So, yeah, in 2013, there was a campaign for right to repair. Uh, independent repair shops wanted access to the repair information that OEMs have. Because sometimes it's not easy to come by, and if they aren't making it easy, uh, like that's the thing, they don't have to give it out for free, but they just have to make it available. And, I mean, that's partially like where one of my old jobs, where I was working for Bentley Publishers, we were creating repair manuals because it's not easy to come by that information. So, um, similar idea. So then apparently it became, I didn't really realize this, it passed, uh, I guess with a significant yes vote. Uh, and then it became a nationwide mandate basically because automakers looked at it and said, well, we don't want the 49 other states passing their own version of this. Let's just standardize it across all 50 states and we'll just follow Massachusetts lead. And then that way we don't have to deal with this in 49 other states at 49 different times. Right. Yeah. And the same time it's like, we're not going to make, if it's going to be legal in Massachusetts, then what's to stop everybody just from going to Massachusetts to get the information anyway. So, yeah. So the, the big thing, so you got to remember, it kind of goes back to like OBD1 cars, which OBD1 is not really technically a standard. It's just early OBD systems were all willy-nilly. Every company had their own connector uh, for the diagnostic port. It's all totally manufacturer dependent. When 96 came around, that's when they made the OBD2 standard. That's where that plug is standardized. And they're still using that plug all the way till today. Even though the cars become more advanced, that plug has stayed the same. So it still uh, can access the same data. So I guess what's, but I think the problem with that, um, one of the things with that connector is it's maybe it's low speed or it can't transmit certain information. So a lot of manufacturers of very, very new cars are moving towards wireless. Correct. And also for like, you know, your connected car is going to, send you an email that it needs an oil change and all this sort of stuff. And I guess this new version of right to repair is that they want to make sure that independent repair shops and independent other companies that are creating tools outside of OEMs want access to these protocols so that they can also, um, you know, create diagnostic equipment. Seems fair enough to me, right? Yeah, no, absolutely fair enough. You want, again, it's it's about, you know, the small business. You want Jeff's repair shop to be able to fix your car moving forward and not have to rely on the $180 an hour dealership. That's Well, that's the thing. When you're, you know, it's kind of like the appeal of it. If your car is under warranty, you kind of do take it to the dealer. You feel like a little obligated. I get it. I feel obligated to bring our two new cars to the dealers because they're still under warranty. Yeah, and like, I get my, if anything changes, happens, I get my oil changes done at the dealership just so if something goes wrong, they have the history of changing my oil and they know they did the, it right. The thing is like, 
you and I know that from working in the industry because we've seen the horror stories of people take their new car to a Jiffy Lube and the kid leaves the oil, the drain plug off. Right. And then they drive away and it needs an engine and they tow it to the dealer and they're like, well, now this is covered because you had it done at Jiffy Lube. So you can either go through your insurance or pay out of pocket. What's your insurance company? Sometimes you're in, no, your insurance company will say no. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, 100% no. I, I can I can guarantee you that as a 20-year insurance company employee, um, we will not pay for mechanical failures, regardless of, of somebody else's fault or not. Yeah, I don't remember if people tried to do it and whether it worked or not. Or So the, way, yeah, the, way, the way your insurance works, the comprehensive claim, is we will pay for the result of the mechanical failure, but not the mechanical failure. So say uh, your say your wheel falls off and you crash, crash into a ditch, we'll pay for that crash damage. But we're not going to pay for the wheel, the part that broke and fell apart. So if your engine blows up, yeah, we'll, because it ran out of oil, we're not going to pay for anything damaged by the oil. But if you, you know, something happened and it caught on fire, we'd pay for the fire damage afterwards. Like, that's how it works. Uh, okay. So... Yeah, that's really kind of where that comes from. But as cars are getting older and they go out of warranty and people are keeping cars longer because it is good to keep a car. You know, I want to keep my cars at least 10 years, possibly 15, maybe 20. It would be nice to be able to access the car's computer systems uh, later on down the road and not have to buy some super expensive dealer tool. Because like, um, you know, one of the most annoying things, if you listen to the show, we know what we talk about is TPMS sensors, right? So, right. like, think about it. If if right to repair didn't exist and my dad and I were not able to get a TPMS tool for the Montero, uh, not the Montero, for the Outlander. Outlander. Uh, or for the Subarus that we have, it's basically $100 every time you go to the dealer to basically put air in the tires. Yep, which is twice a year with summertime with your time tires. Yeah, and it's super, super annoying to like to have that just be a dealer only thing. Like that just seems like to me, as a consumer, I feel like I should have the right to fix any object that I purchase that is mine. It's mine. I I pay the money for it. It's mine. Yep. I can do with it as I please, and I should be able to take it apart and fix it if I want. Or break it, or whatever. Yeah. Um, Once you pay for it. And I guess that's a big thing with like Teslas. And interestingly, they were not; they haven't come out against this right to repair in Massachusetts, which is pretty interesting. They're not uh, on. They're they're not one of the big automakers that are fighting it. I think because they know that it's going to wind up. They're going to wind up losing. I think is why they're not fighting it. Yeah. Yeah, it seems kind of silly because either that you're either going to give people access or they're just going to have people hack it. So that brings us to the negative arguments from all the automakers. They claim that people are going to hack into your car, uh, override safety stuff. They're going to steal your personal information, use it to stalk you and attack you. Like sexual predators will attack you. I mean, they ran these crazy... Yeah, scare ads in Massachusetts. Yeah, like if this if this passes, people will know where you live. Well, yeah, people already know where you live. That's not hidden information. 
they're not going to get somebody it. could just follow you. That's just yeah. If you're in public, somebody can just follow you. Unfortunately, that's just like <laughs> the other the other thing that they were scaring people with was the um like the cyber attack on your car. Like they could take control of your car and control your throttle and your brakes and your steering. Yeah, so. and so that's their argument is that the the mandate to have this availability um, is too, it needs to be by the 2020 model years, which apparently is too short. And people are already, well, the manufacturer well, are already building. Those cars are engineering. Well, they're already engineering the 2020 cars. 20, yeah, 2020. Sorry, the 20, 2022 cars. Okay, that sounds better. I don't remember what year this is. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's what I meant to say. And they're just saying that it's too late to change the programming to give a separate platform to give these people access, which sounds kind of like a BS argument. Like if they put enough time into it, well, they can get done. the problem is the law that existed in 2020, previously to this law going on the books, technically already has the Right to Repair Act of 2013 built into it. So they, couldn't, they couldn't make it against that rule already. So the only difference in this law is the wireless capabilities of it. That's what they're trying to add. Yeah. Yeah. So they're saying that because they want the vehicle to be able, they want the consumer to be able to have the wireless access to the car that, well, now if consumers have wireless access, then obviously the people who are the predators and the bad people are consumers and they'll be able to hack into your car and find out where you live and when you're there and where you are at all times. Well, if that was truly a concern, then that consumer shouldn't have a cell phone. If yeah, that was truly or, concerned, that consumer should not have the internet. The exactly. Yeah. So I, I, it's it's a big overkill of something that's not true. It's a, it's the typical um, the scare tactic that somebody will try to get you to believe their side. Um, there's there's sure is is there a potential that somebody could hack into your car, find out your schedule, find out your address, go to your house, and murder you when you're home? Sure. But if somebody's going to go to that much effort to find out your schedule where you are, there are ways they can do it right now that are much simpler than hacking into your car. So I don't understand this whole scare tactic of it. And as far as the whole taking over your car and turning your car into a, you know, a murder machine on wheels by controlling your steering and your speed and your brakes, again, is is the potential there? Sure. Is the potential already there? Yeah. It is, you know, it's, it's already possible. And on top of that, somebody who's going to go through the effort of learning how to hack into your car system doesn't care if it's a consumer good or not. <laughs> I mean, they got to find a way in. Yeah. And giving people this access, like, you know, there's, there's white hat hackers that will go in and find exploits and tell the manufacturers so that they can fix it. Like that's what some people do. Like they just, yeah, absolutely. Find holes so they can be fixed. So it's like that should be on the responsibility of the manufacturers too. Like you, you can like it's the same. Yeah, it's the same thing we're saying. Like having a cell phone, it's on Apple, it's on Google to build a phone that can't be easily hacked. But also, I can use it, and my information is protected. Right. So like. You know, it's not like just because I'm using their phone gives them the right to my data, I guess. Or maybe it does. I don't know. 
You, you, didn't read like, con- you didn't read your contract line by line, Andrew? Yeah. I mean, if you're really this concerned about it, then you need to drive Brad 78 Colt all the time. Well, do you remember back in 2015 when the big news story of the day was that hackers learned how to def- how to hack in and control a 2015 Jeep Grand Cherokee? Yeah, I think so. Vaguely. Like, that was a big thing back then. So the fact of the matter is this concern already exists and the manufacturers have been fighting it since this concern started happening in 2015. And just what you talk about, the, the white hat hackers, the ones that are paid by companies to try to break into their software, to try to defeat their security measures so that they can better make them for the consumers already exists. And moving forward, there's nothing that's going to change any of this. Like this is the world we live in. This is 2020. Everything we live is connected through data, through internet, through your Facebook, your Instagram, your Twitter, your email, your work, your social security, your bank account. Everything is tied through your phone. Your phone is the vulnerable hack point. Your car is not going to matter. Yeah. So anyway, we want this law to pass as, how is it written? It's written as yes on one is correct, correct? Yes on one is is a, a vote for this. So yes on one uh, will I mean, allow I'm, access. I'm yes on one, yeah. Yeah, so yes on one will allow access to the manufacturers. And it's a strong, to give it's strongly, like, it's likely that this will become a national standard. Because the one in the, 2013 did. Yes. Yeah. And again, manufacturers are not keen on making separate laws for separate vehicles in separate states. No, that's like why California and federal emissions are so annoying. Correct. And I think most new cars are just all California. The majority of them are. The majority of cars sold in Massachusetts for years have been California emissions. Yeah. Which I had a huge discussion with recently about somebody who unfortunately drives an Altima, but is still a friend of mine, despite that fact. Mm. Um, they were having a hard time buying a fuel pump for their car because they were insisting that it had two connectors on the fuel pump versus the one connector. And the local Napa was insisting that, no, this obviously is not a California emissions car, you're in Massachusetts, this is not going to be the right part for you. Um, and which obviously it was a California emissions car that was bought new in Massachusetts because the standards are so close. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's unrelated. But yeah, so this will wind up becoming more than likely the national standard. Um, it should pass. The local mechanic shop should have access to the car data. Um, BMW has been doing this for years with their smart keys where your key in your pocket tells you when it's time for an oil change. You go into the dealership, they take your key, they click it into this little transponder thing next to their computer, and it reads the data from your ECU at their computer. So none of this is new. Well, there was even, this even came up um, a few years ago with farmers out, you know, you're out, you know, houses are 10 miles apart, right? Yep. And you've got your tractors there, and John Deere was trying to tell these people that, nope, you you can only have a John Deere authorized repair person or whatever a dealer fix it, right? Which and could be like, hundreds no. of miles away, and a tractor costs yeah, like, no, thousands of dollars to transport. Tractors are in- incredibly expensive, right? And they right. cost they cost lots and lots of money, and they they're vital to a farmer's livelihood. To you need them, right? And if you can't fix it yourself, like that's when it breaks, like that's a big problem. So, oh, absolutely. 
I mean, that's the same thing happens with cars, obviously on a lower scale, on a lower scale. But if you buy a BMW or a Mercedes and you live, you know, in a rural place up in northern Maine, there might not be a BMW dealer for 250, 300 miles. So it's not convenient yeah. to have to bring it to a BMW dealer. Sure, this works for somebody that lives in Salem, Massachusetts or Phoenix, Arizona. This dealer is in every street corner. But some people live rurally and those people are more than likely going to bring their vehicle to an independent repair facility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or you'll have like a... <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm sure in uh, in like Vermont you'll have a guy that just specializes in Subarus, but like the Subaru dealer is probably 30, 40 miles away. So yeah, exactly. That, that's why that guy specializes in that. So yep. Yeah, I can think of a place in New Hampshire in the Conway area that specializes in Land Rovers. Yeah, like there's no Land Rover dealer within a hundred miles of there. So he's yeah. an independent repair facility and he specializes in Land Rovers. So that's that's the kind of that's the kind of thing that this is going to affect, and and it's only going to hurt the manufacturer in the long run, I think, because they're going to lose all those sales from you know further away, you know, customers. But they don't care. They only care about the bottom dollar today. Yeah, so, and the bottom dollar today is the first owner, first five years of the car's life fixed at the dealership for one hundred and fifty to two hundred dollars an hour. So that's where we're at. I hate it, but let's make it pass. Unfortunately, I live in Arizona. I can't vote in Massachusetts, so I cannot cannot make this choice. No. So um, on a lighter note here, there was a cool viral video this week that kind of made it like everywhere. And like it got shared in our group chat we have with our, our car friends. And I didn't really understand the context of it at first it was just like a leaf spring setup with um push rods like cantilevered push rods like an indie car basically it's, like a, it's a cantilever suspension that instead of having coils has leaves yeah and it's just like a video of it bouncing and you're like it works and you're like okay that's kind of it, it would i don't know what i'm at <laughs> but that looks pretty cool but now I want to know more. It's mini truck um, stuff, right? No. So it turns out, and this comes from the drive, um, Peter Holdereth of the drive. He, he tracked this guy down after seeing the video and it is a 77 F 100 pickup truck that the guy, the owner's name is, um, Tim, uh, here booth. And what he's done, he got the F100 for a hundred bucks, not running. Tried to make the engine run. It was totally like seized up junk. So he's like, what do I do with this hundred dollar pickup truck? Then apparently a friend of a friend of a friend had an LS400, like the nineties ones. Okay. Uh, with like a triple sign title and like, you know, some weird thing. Where it couldn't just be registered. Just a sketchy car. Yeah. Just a sketchy car. So we got it for like 600 bucks. Perfectly running. Got the 1UZ V8, all this other stuff. So he's like, hmm, why don't I put that engine into the F100? But then he's like, well, then the F100 is still going to handle like a truck. So it's pretty cool. They took the front clip of the Lexus, stripped it down to the frame rails and the engine mounts. And grafted it to the front frame 
of the F100. So now the F100 has totally Lexus front suspension. The engine bolts right in. Apparently the transmission mount lined up with the factory transmission crossmember on the F100. Oh, that's crazy. The drive shaft though is three inches short. It's like, well, I guess at this point the guy's into the thing for like the price of the cars and like 800 bucks. So I said, well, I don't really want to spend that much money on it. So he, they decided him and his other friend that they would mount the rear subframe and axles and everything from the Lexus into the truck because it's easier to modify a bed than spend money on a custom drive shaft, I guess. That's not, that's definitely not the case, but this is, this is a, a case of pedantics at this point because yeah. they wanted to do it this way. But I mean, a custom um, drive shaft is like 600 bucks. So they modified the subframe in there, got it all to line up, realized that, uh, to add the rear suspension coilovers, you know, the factory ones from the LS 400, you'd have them sticking up above the bed rails, right? Cause they're so tall. Yep. They're mounted up in the package tray of the Lexus. They decided like, what can we do with what we have here? And so they rigged up that cantilever um, suspension as the guy calls it. Uh, cantilever instead of cantilever. cantilever. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. So are these are the factory so that- springs in the back of the truck. They were factory F100 springs. I guess they've now switched them to F150 springs, a little stiffer. And they are going to add shocks in a lateral way to dampen them. But it's a pretty cool project, I guess. Yeah, it's one of those. It's not something you would have thought to build, but because you had the parts, you built it. No, and and what the author of the article points out, that it's interesting in the world of so many LS swaps, this is like an interesting, different thing. And it's not like a super high dollar crazy build. It's just kind of like a, all right, we have these parts. Let's adapt them to fit. It's proper hot rodding. Yeah. It's a really cool hot rod. Yeah. I dig uh, it. I've, I've been looking at these chassis swap cars a bit lately. Um, because the LS 400, there was that 51 Chevy that was swapped onto the LS 400 frame. Well, I guess mm -hmm. you really can't call it a frame. It's more like a, the unibody floor pan. So he also did this with the truck. So he's he's swapped in the lower pan and the front firewall because it's got all the stuff on it. Oh, yeah. Like the brake booster and like, yeah. Pretty much, again, they use the term loosely, but a bolt and a fare. Yeah. (laughs) So, but anyway, I've been, again, this is probably beyond my, you know, home backyard hackery skills at the moment, but I've been like going online obsessively looking at wheelbases and track widths of lots of old cars versus new cars. And I have a bunch of these things built in my head. I'm like, what about a 78 Colt that's dropped on a Miata chassis? Okay. Hmm. I could see that. Yeah, exactly. What about a, I don't know, 74 Maverick that's dropped on like a S2000 chassis? Like all these different weird mix-ups in my head and trying to get the wheelbases and track widths and all this stuff lined up. So again, it goes beyond my own personal skills, but it might be something that'd be fun to take on with somebody who's got more uh, welding and hacking skills than I do. I mean, for the most part, if you can keep the factory suspension pickup points, then you're pretty much going to have a a Colt that's going to drive like a Miata. Which would be awesome. Yeah. So the, the 51 Chevy that I'm talking about, I can't think of their name on... Instagram, they have a whole page for it. Um, they used the 
full unibody structure, including the front and rear strut towers from the Lexus and stuffed them all up inside of this 51 Chevy and just made it work normally. So we, and we have a friend That's of ours, cool. we have a friend of ours in Massachusetts that has a 51 Plymouth, sorry, 54 Plymouth. That's dropped on a 2003 Audi A4 chassis. Yeah. And it's, it just works. I mean, the only thing I would have done differently that he did was he put the Audi dash in the 54 Plymouth. I'd keep the 54 Plymouth dash, but that's an aesthetic choice. That was his, not mine. But overall, mm-hmm. it's like, it's the same idea. It's just like 54 Plymouth Cranbrook that runs and drives like a 2004 Audi A4 or A6 or whatever. Yeah, V6 turbo quattro. Like the dash what? choice was probably for a little simplicity of it was a hundred percent for simplicity. You I just spend more time on it. Yeah, you can make it work. I would go through. Have gone that far. I'm gonna put the 54 dash because sure. I want. I want to get in the car and not have any visual clues that I'm not in a 54 Plymouth at that point. So that, that's again, that's just personal. I mean, I, I go back to the 80s and my dad had a 50. Oops, sorry, a 49 Chevy Fleetline that had full, like, 76 Caprice under it. And it's, that's just, uh, I mean, a 76 Caprice is not anything to write home about now, but in 1985, a 76 Caprice was a nine-year-old car, so it made this 49 Chevy drive like a nine-year-old car. Again, his car had the 76 Caprice dash in it, which I don't agree with, but that's an aesthetic choice that can be changed. So this is not a new idea. It's just being adapted in different ways. And it's got my mind thinking about all these different things I could do and, or I couldn't do, but I want to do so. And then I just hit myself in the head and say one project at a time, Brad, one project That's at a right. time, finish the Toyota truck first. So, all right. So I also asked a listener question this week on our Twitter account. You did. And then I later asked it on our Instagram account. And it was kind of like I wanted some feedback from listeners on what a universal bit of car repair knowledge is. You know, something like uh, I was had the starter in mind, like um, one, because I did the starter and two, because I saw a picture. It was a meme of a starter that said, do not hit with a hammer. <laughs> and it was like Jeremy Clarkson going, "Uh oh, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Because it's definitely a thing you can do. Did like, not did not work for the 78 Colt. No, but for, like, I don't think I've ever had it work, but it's definitely something that you just try. Yeah, there's no reason not to. Yeah, I don't know. Have you ever had it work? I mean, we just we just did it two weeks ago to the Starion fuel pump. Oh, that's true. The thing, yeah, I don't know. Kick, thing wouldn't kick over, wouldn't kick over. We tried jolting it with electricity. It didn't work. So we just smashed it with a hammer. Like at this point, what do we have to lose? Let's just hit it. So we put a piece of wood on it. And we hit it with a hammer through the wood to like soften the shock and it didn't work. And then we were like, well, at this point, there's really nothing to lose. Let's just hit it directly yeah. with the ball peen hammer. And we smashed it hard enough to put a little ding in the case and the thing started pumping fuel again. Yeah. So I was kind of looking for things that are like just kind of out, out there in the world that people just know, but like, you don't really know where it came from. Like maybe your dad told you, maybe you heard it from a friend, but like, it's just like a universal thing that people just seem to know. Um, I made a couple of good ones like, uh, Benjamin well, the, hunting. The, said, the, the, sorry to interrupt, but 
obviously the, the term for hitting things with a hammer is a technical tap. Right. So that's the kind of they're looking for. We're looking for more things that are technical taps that aren't that are universally known, but maybe you don't know them. So listening to us now, you'll learn them. So are you on Twitter right now or the Instagram page? I'm looking at the Twitter. Okay. You can go through that then. So Benjamin Hunting, uh, you can push start a manual transmission. That's pretty well known. Yep. That's a good universal thing to know. Again, it works on every manual transmission. I like to put a car into second gear. Yes. I was told again, I was told by someone they're like, no, second gear just works better if you it's like a little more it works easier. Yeah, or easier, yeah. It works easier. The problem is in first gear is usually geared so high that yeah. you're you're more likely just to stop the car than you are to yeah. stop the car. So, and again, and again, you say it's well known, but that's the point. These should be well known. These are just like universal truths that everybody should know. And yeah. uh, if somebody doesn't know by listening to them, no, they will know. So yes, you make sure the ignition is on, put the car in second gear and either push or pull or roll down a hill. And uh, just once you've got up to a few miles an hour, just pop the clutch in the car. If everything else is working correctly, should start. And then uh, James McDosh, never jump a battery backwards. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've done that, blown the uh, main relay fuse. Yep. Also, don't lay your tools across your battery. Oh, yep. Yep. You'll uh, you'll weld a wrench to the battery post. Yep. Um, Bradley Brunell, uh says, gap your points with the business card. Yep. That's a big one. Yeah. I never, I never heard of that because I never had a car with points. So I can tell you a personal story. Driving my 1968 Camaro uh, through Salem on North Street. God, this must have been 1998, 1999. <laughs> like it was a very long time ago. Uh, my points went bad in traffic. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able to take the distributor cap off, and I stacked two business cards side by side, and I put them in, and I regapped them, and the car fired right up. <laughs> so that's cool. Yeah, I felt like you know people that our other high school friends that were with me were kind of like thought it was magic, right? Dude, you're the best mechanic I ever met. <laughs> <laughs> It's just knowing how to fix something in a situation is what you need. So, all right. So this was an interesting one. Um, Bob Sorkanich, Sorkanich. I'm going to probably pronounce it wrong. I'm really bad with pronouncing names as it's not. If you're listening to the show, you know that. Um, this one's pretty obvious. Loosen the load nuts before you jack up the car. Yeah, but it's not obvious to somebody who's not grown up around this. Yeah. Um, I suppose, yeah. That's a it's a good tip. That's a like, don't take them all the way off. But if you need to take the wheel off and jack the car up in the air, it's and you don't have an electric impact or an air impact, you'll never get the lug nuts off because the wheel will just turn on you. So just put the weight of the car on the wheel or on the tire, and then loosen them, and then jack the car up, and then you can take them off. Um, but this one, the other part that he had, um, was really weird. I've never heard it. And he says, if it seems like the battery is dead, flash the high beams a few times, then turn the key. Okay, why? Uh, and then he replied later on, it says, because other people were like, can you fill this in, you know, fill me in on this? And he just said, it's one of those dad told me tricks that nobody seems to be able to explain. But sometimes if you've got an unresponsive battery, flashing the high beam seems to wake it up. This one might require some testing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's curious. Maybe it's one of those things that just worked for you a couple times, and then, I don't know. It's weird. I never heard of it. But give it a go. And then, of course, uh, 
He's got if the engine is running hot, turn on the heat. Yeah, that's that's that's, that's an old common one. Actually, I experienced that on the way uh, across the country. Um, actually, in Arizona, where the temperature was back up in you know like ninety eight, ninety nine, a hundred. Mm-hmm. Uh, not so much as turning on the heat, but just turning off the AC. When there's a heavy load on the engine, turn off the AC, and the temperature will go down. Um, yeah, it's. It depends because sometimes on a modern car, having that extra fan running for the AC can in, help cool the engine. in traffic. Yes, but if you're if you're if your temperature is climbing because you're putting a heavy load on the engine, that extra load added by the AC compressor is usually offset by turning off the AC compressor. And I was my car runs at 190 degrees all day, every day, 24 hours straight. Um, and I was 190 degrees is dead set right in the middle. And I was halfway in between that's the three quarters of full heat going up a hill here on route 17 in Phoenix or in Arizona and uh, turning the AC off and it immediately dropped back down to half. So it does, it does make a difference, especially on a heavy load in a hot day in a hot environment. So, but I, I also agree with you that sometimes turning the AC on, you get that extra, the extra auxiliary fan spinning can help cool the car in certain situations. But yeah, turning the heat not on. Like, not like turn the AC on full blast, like turn it on one notch into the blue. It just, really, to, just to trigger it to get the fan going. So here's the thing with AC. It really doesn't matter because the compressor is either engaged or not engaged. It's not like a percentage no. of engagement. No, no, no. It, no it do, that's, not, that's not the point. The point is you're triggering the system to turn the fan on. Oh yeah, of course. As soon as you as soon as you flip the car into AC mode, the condenser fan is going to turn on. Right. Uh, because it needs more airflow over that condenser. So you're saying for comfort, if it's cold, don't worry about turning the AC on full blast. Just turn the just make it so the compressor kicks on. No, no, I'm saying if if the car is running hot and you want to get that extra fan going, you can turn it just enough to get the AC system to quote unquote turn on and to run the fan. Because often if the thing is running too hot anyways, the pressures are too high, it won't circle the Freon, but it'll run the fan. Okay. That's my point is you want to get that fan to run to blow air over the radiator and condenser. Right. But they have to get the compressor to go. If you're running the AC and you're climbing a hill and it's hot and the temperature gauge is going up, turn the AC off. It will make a difference. I, I can speak from pure experience that I had two days ago. It made a huge difference. Yeah. And then if this gauge is not working, burnt artichoke says tapping gauges makes them work again. At the it does. Of the smoke. car, yeah. <laughs> um, and then mittens, over-tightening is as bad as under-tightening. I agree. That's 100% true. Do you remember probably okay, it must have been in the 90s we were driving in my talon and I think you were with me and the wheel was loose and we kept tightening it to make it tighter and instead of making it tighter we were actually digging the lug nuts into the aluminum of the wheel I wasn't with you but I remember the aftermath yeah you didn't have the right lug nuts I had the wrong lug nuts yeah yeah so I'm getting towed home that day. Oh no, I didn't get towed uh, home. We found up. I found a nap, but I had the right lug nuts in stock. Yeah. So, but yes, over tightening is definitely as bad as under tightening. The Oliver Picard says sitting cars. Uh, the more you drive it, the more reliable it'll be. 
yeah, that's a pretty, yeah, pretty fair. And then this one, I'm not sure, VB. Um, I'm not sure what the joke is, but it's kind of weird. When you take your car to the garage, ask for Ed. Not Edward or Ted or Eddie. Ed. Yeah, he's not wrong. It's always a guy named Ed or a guy named Bill or a guy named Mike. Never Michael, never William, never Eddie. That's true. The less, the less, the less letters, the better you get, the better mechanic. All right. Fair enough. I get it. So let's see. On the old Instagram. We're, we're not going to say Sam Rasmussen's answer because it's not correct. No. I'm, I'm assuming that's a joke that a stack of cinder blocks is as good as a jack stand because it's not. They do not have the weight capacity to hold your car. So if you read the response, do not do that. You might die. Um, so throttle by cable. He's giving firing order. One, three, four, two. Um, general I think that's rule. More, I think that's most four cylinders. Yep, general rule. Um, Alex Stadel has a good one. This is one of my favorite ones. Is thread the axle nut. So when you're dealing with like a CV axle, you need to get it out of the hub. Also for this too, we need to, when you need to loosen this axle nut because uh, they can be really stuck. What you can do, uh, sometimes you have to take the wheel off. So with the car on the ground, loosen your lug nuts, jack it up, take the wheel off, pop the center cap of the wheel out, Put the wheel back on, tighten the lug nuts. You don't have to torque them. Just tighten them enough so the wheel's not wobbly. Put it down on the ground so the weight of the car is on the tire. Then you can break the axle nut free without spinning it because the weight of the car will be on it, especially if you don't have an uh, an impact. Uh, Then you can lift it up. And then when you've got it threaded or when you've got it loose, don't thread it all the way off. This is what Alex is saying. Thread the axle nut to the end of the threads. So you're protecting the threads and you can now hammer the CV axle out of the, out of the, the uh, hub and knuckle Yep, good tip. Uh, without mushrooming the end of the CV axle and then getting it stuck. Yep. So that's a good one. Um, that was one I learned pretty early on. Yeti Overland's going to go in. Number one, not all pry bars are screwdrivers. True, but all screwdrivers are pry bars. Have to be careful, but yes. This is a uh, this is the number one rule in the Pascarella garage. Uh, your father says the opposite every time he asks for a pry bar and I hand him a screwdriver. He looks at me with the um, the eyes, the, 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 the thousand yard stare of "Are you kidding me right now? Go get an actual well, pry bar." Yeah, we have some nice pry bars, but yeah. you, if you don't have it, you can use a screwdriver. You got to be really careful because I've definitely broken the tips of flat blades off. Oh, for sure. Um. Uh, number two, if you have to stab an oil filter to get it off, whoever put it on, put it on too tight. Unless you're working on a vehicle like an RX-7 that has a upside down oil filter, then you stab it every time because it actually, by letting the air in, it drains it back into the engine instead of making a mess when you take it off. Oh, no. He's not talking about stabbing it to drain the oil out. I know what he's talking about. I'm just saying, unless. I know what he's saying. Um, Number three, beers. Yeah, have beers for after. Also, see pizza. Yep. Have a friend with long, lanky arms. Um, I do. It's not me because I have short Tyrannosaurus Rex arms. So that's that's what I've been told for years. Auto parts stores rent tools. 
which can be useful if you don't have them. I've learned this more recently than in the past because I've been spoiled um, since getting my driver's license by working in your dad's garage where your dad has every tool known to man. Uh, but since moving out here, I don't have every tool known to man. And I have learned that um, AutoZone has the best tools at the best prices for rental. Hmm. Um, torque wrenches are your friends. Yes. So, yep. Yeah. When you can, use a torque wrench. Yep. If there's a torque spec, use it. That goes right back to the over-tightening is as bad as under-tightening. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to make sure that you don't snap bolt heads. And you want to make sure that things have the correct amount of torque to stay together. And then my dad commented, he's got a good one. This is a this is a cool one. Uh, most good old American V8 engines had timing chains. So this is across probably, you know, Ford, Chrysler, GM, right? Yep. Uh, so the chain connected the crankshaft to the camshaft and drove it at half the speed of the crankshaft. Then the camshaft opens and closes the intake and exhaust valves also turns the ignition distributor. Timing between the crank and the cam must be precise and accurate for the engine to run at best. Over time, the chains get uh, stretched and get sloppy. And this will throw your timing off. So his favorite way to check for a sloppy timing chain is on an old V8 like this, obviously engine off, remove the distributor cap, and then you can turn the crank back and forth by hand. I think probably not even that much, like you know, quarter turns. Um, and what he's saying, you can judge the slack in the chain by seeing how much the crank moves before the motor, sorry, before the rotor turns in the distributor. He says, with a good chain, there should be not there should be not uh, any motion of the crank without the rotor moving. Yeah, that's, that's a good. Tip. I could tip for an old V eight car for sure. I wonder if that would work on your chain driven Mitsubishi engines. I don't see why it wouldn't. It's the same. It would it would tell you that one of the chains in there is 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 bad, whether it's that of the oil pump drive. But yeah, should be should be an issue. Well, it should tell you that the. Like your tensioner is working properly. No, on your like the radar that would tell you that because the oh yeah yeah, yeah. it's all direct. The, yep, for sure. The camshaft is distributor driven. Yep. Or, or my Toyota picks up really. Yeah. So really, any old any timing chain driven engine with a distributor, this should work actually. Yeah, it should. So that's, yeah, that's a good tip to when you're checking out an old engine. My my own personal tip would be um, buy a puller. Yeah. Um, steering wheels, pulleys. It's The part is like $20, and it's significantly useful. Um, and I know some people that have lost teeth trying to pull off steering wheels without a proper tool. So yep. a steering wheel puller is the best way to go. I would, um, I would also say cheap and inexpensive. You can get a decent dead blow hammer. Yep. Uh, you don't want to use, because not all the time do you want to use a metal hammer. And a rubber mallet absorbs too much, but a nice plastic covered sand filled dead blow. Like when you shake it, it sounds like a maraca. This is good for your axle nut thing that Alex talked about. It's good for that. It's good for this, you know, your crank pulley. Yep. If you don't have that puller, you can tap around your crank pulley. No, you don't. You literally go to AutoZone and buy a puller because it changes your life. It's so much easier. Yeah. Yeah, I've done it with and without. I have too. That's uh, why I'm saying that you shouldn't do it that way because when you're, having seen the light, always buy a pulley, pulley tool. When your uh, when your wheels seize to the hubs, you can loosen the lug nuts. Yep. After you've loosened them on the ground, you can jack it up and it doesn't want to come off. Throw like two lug nuts back in, smash the tire 
with the dead blow. And that way the dead blow, if you accidentally hit the wheel with it, it's not as likely to damage the wheel as a metal hammer. The other pro tip for that is if you don't have a dead blow, put like a two by four between the wheel and the hammer and hit the two by four with the hammer. That'll work. Yeah. Or you can you can drop your, the heel of your shoe onto it as you roundhouse kick it. Right. That works too. Not not as much impact usually though. Plus, plus um, broken ankles. No good, no good. Yeah. I mean, there's just like tons of uses for a dead blow. So. Yeah, no, a dead blow hammer is definitely a good purchase. Oh, and our favorite tip probably would be if you're working on Japanese cars, invest, invest, invest in a set of JIS screwdrivers. Oh, the best. Like not even like, not not even thinking about it. Like they're not cheap. They're not cheap, but the amount of time will save you having the proper bit for a Japanese industrial standard screwdriver is is significant if we knew this 20 years ago we probably would have made millions as vintage japanese car stores so because the they thing wouldn't know how to take them apart the thing i've also found is now that i have i have the three gist screwdrivers in my toolbox they're like the nicest screwdrivers i have yep. a gist screwdriver will work well in a phillips yep but a phillips does not work well in a gist yeah so, so next time you're under the dashboard of your old mitsubishi cursing at mitsubishi for using um wisconsin cheese to make their Phillips heads realize that it's not the heads that are the problem. It's the screwdriver you're using. It's not correct. Yeah. Also not really stuff. spend good money on a good set that has the, um, the, their impact style. So you can hit the end of them. They have the, the metal end on them, which is good for hitting with a hammer. And also usually it's a quarter inch drive. Or I like the ones that you can put the 10 mil on. They have a, on the shank, they have a spot for a 10 mil yeah. ratchet or yep. ratchet, or a wrench, a wrench. box wrench. Yep. Those work too. And then it gives you, you can then with one hand push into the screw and the other hand have leverage to turn it. Yep. And I've had, I've broken screws free that way. So that's the, I think Vessel is the brand that yeah, I have, right? That's one you have too. Yeah. Those are the ones you get on uh, Amazon. Yeah. They're pretty good price. They're, they're pretty good, good price and pretty good brand for what they are. They're definitely like, I'd say they're probably like the craftsmen of Japanese screwdrivers. There's probably higher end ones and lower end ones, but those are like the middle of the road hobby level ones. Those are huge, huge purchase. And anybody who I've recommended them to has gotten them and been like, why isn't this common knowledge? <laughs> so oh, good. Uh, quick project car updates before we wrap this up. I think we talked about the Volkswagen not getting fuel. My mom's Beetle. The Beetle, yep. Um, and like just totally falling flat on its face and the pump getting loud and noisy like it was sucking air uh so i guess my dad was telling me he was investigating it he had the car up he pulled the line off the tank the feed line that's in the bottom uh, going into the pump and he took the fuel cap off and it was just like dripping fuel out and now this is in a point where it's at the bottom of the tank if you took that off it should just pour out like a drain like it's just come out like you're just draining gas out of the car. Yeah, of course. It's coming out drip. He's like, hmm, that's weird. So he took his blowgun and he blew up in there and was like blowing it and heard like a pop. And then all of a sudden the fuel just came pouring out. So somehow something is inside the tank and it found its way to that hole and was plugging it. If I remember correctly, when I bought that car, the seller said he replaced the fuel system. Included yeah, the tank. I'm wondering, so I wonder if the tank, of the lines. Yeah, the tank does look very new. Of course, it's not rusty because it came from Arizona, and it's inside the frunk 
So it's not even yeah. really exposed underneath. Um, so it wouldn't be too bad to take it out. The, the bolts are not rusty. We just lift it out of the, I think we'd have to take the, the front lid off would be, if we took it off, it'd be easier to get the tank out maybe. But anyway, I think, yeah, I'm wondering if the guy did a filler neck, like a new filler neck and maybe the old filler neck was deteriorated or even the ethanol now has deteriorated the filler neck and like part of that rubber has found its way into the tank and just kind of gummed up into a ball or something. I didn't think about the filler neck. It could be the filler neck. Because it's rubber. Because also when you would leave a car stored for a while, you would generally want to leave it with a full tank. Um, and that car was stored for a couple of years before I bought it. Um, yeah. So I think it probably, it, it could it could be part of the issue. It sat, it sat for a couple of years still without having that gas move and they could have eaten away at that, that rubber. Yeah. So, so it sounds like it's running well now, but we don't want it to clog up again. So I think we're just going to, because it's so simple. Those cars are so simple. We're just going to pull the tank out and try to clean it out. And uh, worst case, you get a new fuel tank. It's not hard. <laughs> shouldn't need one. No, it shouldn't need one, but I think we'll be able to clean it. Yep. But that's uh, that was a quick update on that. So at least that was uh, an obvious. I love when it's an obvious smoking gun diagnosis. Like, yeah, I didn't think it would be much more than that. And I'm glad it is. We know it's something in the tank. We just don't know exactly what it is, but we know that's what it is because it it was just not getting fuel past the the pump. Well, I know what my father had an issue with with his TR3 was the tank was lined, um, and whatever the lining was made out of with the new ethanol fuels, it broke down the lining and made all the little pieces of grit go in the mm. fuel lines. So that could also be a potential a thought that I... I don't think they lined those tanks. I don't think those cars were that fancy. Neither was a fifty-one, I mean, sorry, fifty-nine TR three, but it had a line. That's probably a very British thing. They lined it with like sheepskin or something. Yeah. To, to... <laughs> well, anyway, sounds like a great podcast. Uh, where can they find you, Brad? You can find my Instagram at tsiss three five zero. Cool. You can find us on Twitter. Auto Off Topic, Auto Off Topic on Instagram, Auto Off Topic Podcast on Facebook. We're doing a little more stuff on Twitter, like asking questions like that and uh, commenting on other car things on Twitter. Um, so as always, keep cars analog and aim for the roses. <laughs>